You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Satan, your kingdom must come down. Satan, your kingdom must come down. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Satan, your kingdom must come down. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of uh, the Sectarian Review Podcast. As always, I am Danny Anderson, as uh, sitting in as your host here today. Uh, today, we are going to be jumping back into the world of literature. We've been doing a lot of pop culture stuff here lately, which I love, and I think the listeners like too, but uh, I don't want to make it too easy on you. So uh, we're actually going to do uh, a classic novel by Chaim Potok uh, called The Chosen, which is very famous. Um, if you haven't read it, uh, it's a real quick read. Um, please hit pause, go back and read it, and, uh, and join us for a conversation conversation about this. It's a really interesting novel that I think in the end of this episode, you'll see how it has a lot of strong intersections with some of the dilemmas that Christians find themselves in in our contemporary moment. And so um, joining me today is Nathan Gilmore of the uh, Christian Humanist Podcast. Nathan, how are you? I'm doing pretty well, Danny. Uh, You know, it's Friday. Uh, I've actually got a weekend where I can sleep past six o'clock on Saturday. My kids don't have any, uh, competitions or travel or anything like that. That hasn't happened since about January. So I'm looking forward to, uh, this weekend. Yes. Um, I'm looking forward to the end of this semester. (laughs) I'm way past this weekend. Uh, yeah, this has been a a pretty grueling semester. Um, the sectarian review podcast is one of my brief respites though. So I'm very happy to, uh, to talk with my old friend, uh, Nathan Gilmore, uh, who I should say is a associate professor of English at Emanuel college in Franklin Springs, Georgia. Um, and kind of the, you know, the, what are you called? The, the figurehead of the of Christian humanist uh, radio network? The pretty face. The pretty, call me the pretty face. <laughs> okay, we'll do that. Um, that, that actually probably works. So, um, now this episode, Nathan, is neither one of our ideas. This was kind of imposed on us by our great uh, press liaison, uh, Kristen Philippic. Am I right? That's right. Kristen uh, emailed, I can't remember if she emailed both of us or just one of us and said, uh, we need to do an episode, you and me. Uh, on this novel, The Chosen. And here's why, because there is a character in this book uh, who basically passes books along to the uh, young and the pious uh, and, you know, stands as sort of a threat to their faith, if you will. Uh, And, you know, one of my favorite lines uh, from the novel itself is, you will not make a goy out of my son. (laughs) And I said, you know, a novel that has a line like that, I do want to talk with Danny Anderson about it. (laughs) Yes, that's true. Uh, when I did leave Emmanuel College, uh, you guys kindly bought me a mensch on a bench, uh, like a, a Jewish version of Elf on a Shelf, which is still proudly hanging in my office right now as we speak. Uh, Excellent. <laughs> yeah, and I guess so f- for the listeners' benefit, um, I, I did my dissertation on Jewish American fiction. That was sort of the the main emphasis of a lot of my professional research, which I'm getting further and further away from as my actual life 
becomes more important than my professional life. And so, <laughs> but, uh, but I, I do try to keep uh, a little bit current. And so um, I'm ex- very excited to talk about this book. Uh, we do have a, a listener question. I like to tweet out, uh, you know, calls for questions for us. So at some point we'll get into a question that I received on Twitter. Um, but in the meantime, before we get started, I want to ask everybody and remind everyone that if you haven't, go to the Facebook page, like the Facebook page. Um, I keep promising, but pretty soon I am going to actually follow up on that um, contest that we had several, several months ago and uh, and uh, and award some prizes via some sort of Facebook live video thing that I'm going to do when I have some time away from my actual job here um, to do such things. So, um, but, and I also want to remind you to go to, if you go to the Facebook page, you'll find a link to a, a call for papers. Um, my college where I work at now, Mount Aloysius College in Pennsylvania, is hosting a, a teaching conference. And it's open to college, high school, whoever, uh, people who are interested in teaching. Uh, we're having a conference and there is a, uh, a call for papers and uh, some information about that on the Facebook page. Um, if you're interested in doing that, I would love to uh, to meet you in person. It would be a great uh, opportunity to just share the wonders of Mount Aloysius College with the world. So, um, And so, Nathan, let's jump right into this uh, episode. Um, what stands out to you like as a good jumping off point to talk about this novel? Do you want to talk about its background or do you want to t- jump into the novel itself? Well, I'll talk a little bit about what uh, appeals to me about it. And then I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about its place in American letters more generally. Sure. That's your field, not mine. But uh, this is a novel about a pair of fathers and sons, or I guess a pair of pairs. <laughs> um, we'll get into the numerology later. <laughs> yes. uh, but they're all four uh, Jewish men. Uh, in one of the families, you've got uh, Rev Saunders, uh, Isaac Saunders, who is, you know, a revered spiritual figure uh, in the Hasidic community. Uh, his son Danny is an heir apparent uh, of this great religious authority, uh, and he is also, you know, just sort of a an intellectual prodigy. So uh, you've got this, you know, almost superhuman elevated family on one side of this equation. And then on the other side, you have a, a formidable pair as well. Uh, you've got, you know, Reuven Malter, who's a young man displays, you know, amazing aptitude in mathematics, uh, but also has a strong yearning for spiritual things and a strong sense of responsibility uh, to that Jewish community. And his father, David Malter, who is the one who passes books along. We'll talk about that scene here in a little while. Uh, who is, is he a mathematics professor, Danny? Um, I believe I should have written this down, I but I did That's right. Actually. Uh, uh, he's, he's an academic of some sort. Yes. All yeah. right. And if we remember more precisely than that, as we roll along, we'll, we'll talk about that then. Uh, but you know, these two, these two families interact with each other through this novel. Uh, at first, you know, the young men meet on the baseball field because their respective, schools uh engage in a baseball game in which uh reuven is injured when danny uh just smacks a screamer down the middle and hits him in the eye um and you know that sort of begins their weird relationship that unfolds through this thing one of the things that i i really noticed about that one and danny i'm i'm, I'm kind of harking back to the episode we did on christian humanist podcast about you know the broad course of jewish american novels is that this is a novel that actually engages with the Holocaust as a historical reality. Yeah. Uh, and our characters have to reckon with it, and they reckon with it in some very interesting, very different ways. And again, we'll talk about that in a moment, but 
you know, I, I remember you saying in that episode that the Holocaust isn't necessarily on the front burner, if you will, of Jewish American fiction uh, immediately after the war. So where, where does this novel fit in that broad arc of literary history? Yeah. And so I, I, it, this is going to, it's hard to disentangle like really dense academic discourse uh, from this question. And I don't want to go too far down those rabbit holes. I consider this more of a popular humanities kind of show. Um, but in Jewish American fiction studies, um, this novel, I mean, Potok's work in general, he is not considered, people don't do serious work on Potok in the way that they do on Saul Bellow and Philip Roth and even Bernard Malamud for a while in the 20th century. Um, Chaim Potok, Chaim Potok was uh, largely considered like a popular writer, right? And so academics haven't really seriously engaged with his work as much as they have um, the work of these other sort of great Jewish American writers. And much of the 20th century American literature canon is composed of really sort of great Jewish American writers, like so many of the writers, even um, ones who we don't always consider in that conversation, like Eel Doctorow, right? There's uh, a great proportion of the American uh, especially male writers of the 20th century, but though not exclusively, um, are, are Jewish writers. And so it, that field, I guess, if you will, that genre, subgenre, has gotten tons of like critical uh, attention. Potok, not so much. Uh, for whatever reason, this is more of a... Uh, uh, this is more considered light fiction, if you will, even though it's dealing with the Holocaust, right? And so, uh, and that's really interesting because Roth, very, I mean, you people say that Roth and Malamud and, and Bellow all kind of avoided the Holocaust, right? And that is not really true. They dealt with the Holocaust in more kind of subtextual ways. Um, and so much of Roth's early short fiction, even from the 50s, um, has this uh, kind of subtext of the Holocaust that you can read into it, but it isn't explicitly trying to grapple with the Holocaust. And uh, and so that's one um, uh, distinction between his work and this one, which does kind of explicitly deal with it. Now, it is 1969, I believe, this novel came out. So this is more time has passed uh, than early Roth, at least, but Roth's been around 10 years already. And so um, that is one distinction, the Holocaust for sure, that you bring up. Um, but also uh, just the idea of how Potok represents Jewishness uh, in a much more kind of loving way, right? There's You don't have the angst about being Jewish uh, in, in this novel that you do in even Bello or um, especially Roth, right? Um, Roth makes being Jewish um, the subject of his work, right? And, and sort of the, that becomes a tumultuous identity. So Roth is dealing with assimilation in an entirely more antagonistic way, I think, than, than Potok does in this novel. Um, and so um, maybe that's why academics are more drawn to work like Roth's, because it's more edgy, I guess, if you will. Um, and so, uh, yeah, in, in the, the conversation of 20th century American Jewish fiction, Potok is definitely there, but he's considered less academically interesting. Now, that's not to say that he's not important because his work sells a great deal of, uh, of copies, right? And, and he, a great number of copies. And he's also extremely um, popular amongst, you know, 
Jews and Gentiles alike, right? Uh, and so, but there is some way in which he's considered not quite as literary <laughs> as uh, as uh, as Roth is, and so, or you know, even especially Bellow is probably, and so um, that's kind of where I figure him in American letters. This isn't to say that I agree with all of those, um, you know assertions about his place in literary history. Um, but this is just a fact of the Academy. Um, it's, he's a lot less tension. Attention is paid to him than others fairly or unfairly. Um, and so, but, um, that's just sort of a brief summation as much as I can give it. Now, as a, as a, a writer himself, Potok is a really intelligent man, right? I mean, he's a playwright and, and he's, um, he's a scholar and, and he's done, uh, amazing work outside of literature, probably more so than most writers, most of the great, great literary writers do. He's a much more of a Renaissance man, uh, in, in that way than, than certainly Roth is. Roth is nothing but a writer in a cabin in the woods, right? And so, and so that's, uh, that's a, uh, uh, to his benefit, I think so. But, um, as a work of literature, this one occupies a slightly different register in American letters, at least. So, um, thoughts on that follow up? Does that reveal anything? Uh, No, I mean, you know, like I said, I mean, this is not remotely my field. So I kind of wanted to hear, you know, his place. It's interesting that, you know, uh, there's such a hierarchy, if you will, and that he's at the bottom of it. Because, you know, again, as an amateur coming to this, I would have just thought this is, you know, a novel alongside other novels. But uh, I I I didn't know about yeah, I wouldn't say he's at the bottom, right? I mean, there, okay, okay, that's fair. Yeah, there, fair there is like literary scholarship on Chaim Potok. I mean, there's, mm-hmm. I, I believe he has his understanding Chaim Potok book, like understanding Saul Bellow, understanding Philip Roth. Everybody gets those, right? Um, he, so he does get some critical attention. Um, I think maybe it's just a matter of the depth, his sort of, the meaning of his works are closer to the surface than uh, they are in, say, Saul Bellow, where you have to sort of dig into what makes it artistically great. I think um, Potok is a more kind of narratively driven writer, um, and so the, the like the symbolisms and, and things are, are kind of apparent, right? And therefore, scholars haven't felt the need to go so deep into his work um, to pull out what's challenging um the what's challenging is right in the front of you right in front of you right you don't have to sort of dig so deep uh to talk about it so um so yeah he's definitely not at the bottom i wouldn't say that at all but okay okay that's fair enough well one of those challenges i mean that comes around early in this book is you know the his stay in the hospital he's next to a kid named billy uh who also has you know ocular injuries i think although his might be a disease i can't remember I'll, I'll go ahead and tell listeners, I mean, I, I I reviewed this book for this podcast, but I mean, I actually read it most recently carefully, you know, back in whatever it was, I think before we did the Spider-Man episode. Yeah. So I... <laughs> yeah, and it's been like 10 you know, years for me since I've actually really right, read it. Right, so, yeah, right. yeah. so fair enough, fair enough. But, you know, I mean, one of the exchanges that happens early on is, you know, between uh, Reuven and Billy and, you know... Reuven has this sense that, you know, if his eye recovers, which it does, then it's only fair that Billy should recover too, but Billy's doesn't. Mm. Uh, and I mean, at, at first when I was reading through this, you know, I mean, I, I thought, okay, you know, this is just a coming of age kind of story. He starts to realize that, you know, uh, it wasn't his time, you know, to lose his sight. But then I come to realize later on in the novel that, I mean, this is informing, what's going on over in Europe too. I mean, you know, yeah. when they get the news reports about the camps yeah. and when they get the news reports about 
the formation of the Israeli state and when they get the news reports about the seven days war, you know, I mean that, that theme keeps running through it. So, I mean, you know, what we get is, I mean, am I wrong, Danny, uh, to call this survivor's guilt? That's a recurring idea through here. Yeah. I mean, and that's something that this book shares. No, no, (laughs) I'm sorry. You're not wrong. Excuse me. You are, you, yes, you are correct. Um, in asking that you are wrong. No, no, uh, no, uh, that, and that's something this book shares with a lot of, um, I think Jewish American fiction. And I think that's what's behind a lot of the angst in Roth's characters who have assimilated, uh, the assimilated Jews in Roth's care in the Roth stories. Um, I think that that is underneath their psychology, right? This book again, more overtly deals with that. And it also, I mean, it reveals a lot of, um, kind of fissures within the Jewish community, um, about the state of Israel, right? That becomes a major um, point of contention in this novel about, um, uh, between Zionism and your sort of, um, much more ultra Orthodox opposition to scientists, uh, Zionism. And so, um, I think that, Absolutely. Uh, the, um, the gosh, Jewish American history or Jewish history, excuse me, European history, um, definitely haunts the Jewish American imagination, uh, in this novel. And, and it definitely causes, or it's part of the, I mean, it's part and parcel of the, the forces that cause stress amongst Orthodox Jews, even in New York and Bo- Brooklyn here in 1944, for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I got a question about that too, and, and you know, uh, if this is an if if this is a question we can answer with a historical reference, that'll make me much happier than if we have to just deal with it as a genuine literary tension. So okay. that's why I'm posing it to you. Okay. But uh, you know, one of the things about Zionism in this book is that it's a genuine rift, as you said, between you know the Hasidim on one hand, and then the you know the more more assimilated but not completely assimilated Jews on the other hand. Yeah. But then when you get to the, uh, and I can't remember if it's the Seven Days War or if it's the conflicts before that, but as soon as you mix Arabs in, all of a sudden everyone rallies behind Israel. Yeah. And um, I'm like, oh, that makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> and I might not have any right to be uncomfortable, but uh, you know, the fact that when Germans are doing it, we can fight about it. But when it's Arabs, we all stand together. Um, well, so, I mean, Germans have nothing. So it, Zionism is controversial for the Hasidic community um, for very particular reasons. They're sort of ultra religious, right? Ultra Orthodox. And they are, they, there's this idea and I'm, I'm sure that Zionism in actual reality or excuse me, anti-Zionism in actual reality in Hasidic communities is much more nuanced than this. I'm sure there's a lot more, conversation going on in those communities about this than um the one i'm about to say but i'm just kind of right. generalizing but this is a scene in a novel it's not a yes 300 page history of zionism and its opponents yes and it lends itself the broad brush is coming back yes to the broad brush right uh and so <laughs> broad brush is coming back again um it's been a while since so i've hit that actually so um the the reason that zionism is controversial to these ultra religious um uh, Jews, uh, called the Hasidim, right? The Hasidic Jews is that it is a human intervention in God's plan, right? And so, um, God has his own timing for the return of Messiah, of Messiah and, and the, um, uh, and the, um, uh, establishment of Israel again, the reestablishment of Israel and this political 
approach to that is seen as uh, in opposition to uh, God's plan. This is man doing God's work for him, right? And so there's this sort of prideful thing. And so um, there is this sense in which um, people like, for sure, uh, Rabbi Sanders, um, uh, Isaac Sanders, who's Danny's father in this, and he's sort of like the the ultra, he's like the, the symbol of this, of this ideology, right? Sure. Um, sure. He sees this as an affront to God. Right. Um, uh, and whereas David Malter, Reuben's father, the other, uh, like learned rabbi here, he is, um, um, much more engaged in the political establishment of Israel. And so that's the, the political controversy within Judaism about that. Now, the idea of, um, Arabs or anybody doing violence against Jews. I, I I don't know that it's, I don't think that Rabbi Saunders would have been, who cares what the Germans are doing to Jews, right? Uh, it, it like, and, and then he suddenly cares about what Arabs are doing to Jews. I think that there is this rallying around um, Jews as the chosen people, right? And, and so there, I think that um I don't know that ethnicity has a lot to do with that um, in my own my own reading of this, unless there's a moment in the text that uh, that I'm forgetting. It has been a long time since I've actually read this really closely. Right, right, right. And I guess it's just the contrast between the two that struck me yeah. that, you know, when uh, David Malter starts, you know, giving his pro-Israel speeches, you know, there's just this you know, very nearly violent split, yeah. you know, in the in the Jewish community. Uh, but then a couple of chapters later, when the news reports come in that, you know, there's been a bomb that's gone off and it's Arabs attacking the state of Israel, all of a sudden everyone rallies behind Israel. Yeah. Well, and, I mean, and think about like the progression of the plot then in terms of um, Rabbi Saunders. Like, so his arc, I guess, is having to grapple with an increasingly complex world, right? And so um, this is why Danny's ultimate leaving of the faith. Uh, of uh, the way that Saunders uh, defines it, at least, is, uh, I mean, that's what it leads to, is Saunders having to grapple with the fact that the tradition of his Hasidic uh, line that he's um, really part of an ancient tradition of um, is, is about to be broken by modernity, right? And so having to grapple then with the reality of Jews being um, killed by whoever, right? I mean, that's... Um, I think a sign of the development of his consciousness of the complexity of the world. Now he doesn't necessarily like it, right? He doesn't support Danny necessarily, but he gives him freedom to do what he wants to do. Right. You know? And so he, he does sort of adapt to the complexity of the world a little bit. And I kind of see his um, somewhat changed position on Israel there in that circumstance as another example of his having to deal with an increasingly complex world in the 20th century as it progresses. Okay. That makes some sense. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's probably a better reading than the one that was making me so easy. So I, I think I can live with that. Um, you know, it's interesting. I mean, in this novel, you know, you've got these two characters, you know, uh, Reuben and Danny who are just very young men. I think they start out at what, 12, 13 years old. Yeah. 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 And they've already got a sense of themselves as, inheriting an intellectual tradition and this responsibility for teaching. And, uh, you know, it, it made me, you know, reflect once more uh, on just the different paths that people take into this life of the mind, yeah. right? And this life of teaching, you know, I, I had no idea I was going to be a, 
professor, you know, until I was well into undergrad years. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, our friend Chris Hare, who we used to work with at Emmanuel College, he's now at Oklahoma Baptist. Uh, you know, he tells me that he knew he wanted to be a British literature professor when he was an eighth grader. <laughs> I'm like, man, I just, and you know, that that's what I thought of when I read these two characters. I mean, well, what's your story, Danny? I mean, you know, when did you become <laughs> Professor Anderson? My story, I, I was just weird. I just was just um, um, telling this story to somebody last night. I went out to see a movie with them, and um, and I I stumbled through my entire life. <laughs> I have like um, I I've had no kind of drive my entire life to be anything, right? And so I was telling somebody recently, if I had to invent my ideal job, like it would be like the owner of a curiosity shop who solves paranormal mysteries in the evenings, you know? <laughs> so like, so my, my idea, wonderful, my ideal job doesn't even exist. Right. Um, but, uh, um, and so I actually had not, I'd kind of bombed out my first try at college. Right. I just kind of went to college because that's what you do after high school. And I had no sort of, because I had no motivation, I had no imagination of myself, what I wanted to become with it. I didn't do very well. And so I ended up just leaving and bouncing around various factories. I worked on some rubber mills. I used to work at this boathouse. I just kind of bounced around, you know, various working class sorts of uh, uh, careers uh, for a while. You were a Bob Dylan song in other words. Uh, Yeah, I guess so. (laughs) I suppose that's true. Yeah. Um, I've always been tangled up in blue for sure. Um, and, um, uh, but, and so I ultimately, um, start, got found, stumbled into a job at a TV station uh, in the engineering department at a, the PBS station in Cleveland. And I ended up, um, liking my job well enough, but also wanting to do something more creative in like the production end. And I knew I, ne- they told me I needed to have a degree and something to do that. So I went back to Kent state where my credits were all just still sitting there 10 years later. And, uh, and, uh, it was just for whatever reason, logistically faster for me to be an English major to finish. And that's all I wanted. I just wanted to get done with something quickly. And, uh, and so my last semester there, a professor, uh, Martha Cutter, who's now at UConn, uh, she asked me if, uh, and that's actually who I read Roth for, for the first time. Uh, and so, um, she asked me, have you ever considered grad school? I'm like, well, no. And so, and I thought, well, I'll try it, I guess. And I, lo and behold, I ended up getting into Case Western Reserve. So I kind of had to go. And then, <laughs> so once I was there, that's when I knew I was going to be an English professor and it was like way late in life. And so I, I have a hard time. Um, I don't relate at all to either one of these characters because they're like, I wish I could. I mean, I'm jealous of people who were serious earlier in life. uh, And and because, you know, I wasn't, I I have this uh, really kind of tangential story, which ultimately for the, I mean, I guess this is God doing his workings. Um, I work with largely almost entirely working class students who are first generation college students who also don't know what the heck they're doing in college. Right. And so, um, like I actually end up being a really good fit for the kind of students I'm trying to serve. Um, so my stupidity as a youth has paid dividends <laughs> for my current career. That's, that's a nice way to think about it. That's a nice way to think about it. <laughs> so, but yeah, so I, I, yeah, I have no, I have no really, I have no way to even conceive of being that serious when I was 13. Uh, what about you though? Well, like I said, I mean, you know, when I was, you know, in high school and really the first couple of years in college, I mean, I knew, uh, generally like, like you that I, I should go to college when I was done with high school. 
you know, I, I actually considered a career in the military for a while, and then I considered being a youth minister because that's what people who have a little bit of ability but no sense of what they want to do with their lives <laughs> want to be when they're evangelical teenagers. Uh, and then, you know, well, I actually started college as a computer science major because uh, I had a sense, and I mean, this is one of the few predictions about the future I was basically right on, that, uh, you know, these sort of parachurch ministries that I was interested in were going to need a a presence in the internet world. And I didn't know what that was going to look like, but I figured I wanted to be part of it. Uh, but it wasn't until I took my first few humanities classes as an undergrad and realized I really enjoyed it. And then, you know, uh, Craig Farmer, who was my uh, church history and theology professor, you know, suggested that I look into grad school, that I even consider that as a potential path. So, you know, I, I was, I, I didn't have the bomb out experience uh, but I certainly didn't know I was on this path until I was in my 20s. So again, you know, these characters who have this sense of, you know, duty and mission as, you know, very young teenagers, I mean, just kind of blow my mind. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, another thing that blows my mind is that, you know, they are doing this, you know, gematria stuff as 13-year-olds. And, uh, you know, uh, Danny, I mean, I, I don't know how well... Uh, you know him or how much you've interacted with Trip Fuller, but I mean, he's the person I was thinking of when I was reading these characters because, uh. you know, as a teenage Baptist pastor's son, he was leading, you know, Paul Tillich discussion groups when he was 16 yeah, and just other, you know, prodigous, very early sense of mission kind of things. Yeah, I'm totally jealous of people like that, right? Um, like uh, people who are smarter than I am now when they were 13 or 14, like 16, like Trip. You know, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, he's like, yeah, I had my Nietzsche phase when I was 14. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I've tried. I try to, you know, I try not to envy what other people have, right? And, including brains, and so I, I, I do with what limitations that you know God has blessed me with. So. <laughs> nice, nice. Well, uh, tell you what. I mean, I, I think this might be a good place to bring in the uh, listeners' question about the gematria. So, yeah, you yeah. want to read that? We yeah. can take a swing at that. Yeah, as you know, I like to pose a question. Sometimes I wait too late before the recording of the show, but um, in this case, I I got I did get a couple of responses. Um, Edwin Bevins on Twitter asked me. He said it's been a long time since I read it, but I'd be curious if there are any thoughts on gematria, the practice, its use in the novel, etc. Um, and I know that you know a lot more about that as a practice than I do. And, um, um, so I like, let's just kind of show that I know there's a scene in here we can talk about, but, uh, but in general, what is that for the listener? And then we can sort of talk about how it plays out in this novel. Yeah. Gematria is a species of numerology. Uh, it is rooted in the Hebrew uh, alphabet, uh, to where every letter in the Hebrew alphabet corresponds to a number. Uh, and then the numbers in various mathematical combinations come up to other numbers, which in turn get translated back into words. Uh, and if you think that that sounds like space alien stuff, you've actually got it. Uh, if you are, if you have a Christian Bible at home, uh, when, you know, the mark of the beast in Revelation, I think chapter 13, although it might be 14, is 660 and 6. Mm -hmm. uh, that is an early model. Uh, it mm. might not be itself gematria, but it's at the very least proto gematria. Uh, 660 and 6, when you do this numerological thing, uh, translates into the Greek letters, not Hebrew, uh, that spell out Nero Caesar. Okay. And so, you know, the mark of the beast is, you know, Nero Caesar, of course, in the, uh, 10th decade of the common era, uh, there were 
legends going around. I, I don't even know what to call legends that are currently happening. I guess, you know, conspiracy theories, but that seems a little <laughs> anachronistic. Uh, that Nero had come back from the dead and was persecuting Christians. Uh, um, now, I don't think that, you know, uh, St. John the Seer thought that. I don't even think that, you know, most of the audience of that book thought that. But in Revelation, Nero becomes basically the archetype for every oppressive ruler, mm. the way that Pharaoh is the archetype for every pr- uh, oppressive ruler in the Old Testament, right? Right, right. Uh, so, you know, you get that, you know, 660 and 6, you do the gematry on that, it's Nero Caesar. Same sort of thing happens in this novel, uh, except that, you know, they are doing gematria with the Hebrew alphabet, first of all, uh, and they are doing it, you know, not just with one oppressive ruler's name, but they're doing it with all kinds of spiritual realities. Uh, and Danny, I think you've got your book open to that scene, do you not? Yeah, I do. Um, Very good. So, I mean, what happens in that scene with the gematria? Well, so let me, let me just read a little bit from it. Um, and this is uh, in the seventh chapter of the book. I have an old paperback version that the cover's been ripped off. It's been in my back pocket so much. Um, and so back in the day, I used to prefer paperbacks like this. Um, and so um, there's a, I guess, sort of a dinner table scene. And so Rev Saunders is quizzing, I suppose, uh, Reuven here. Who's not his son, Reuven? He doesn't. It's important to know. Rev Saunders doesn't ever really talk to Danny, except in very specific educational uh, or Talmudic conversations. That's the only time he would even speak to his son. Um, a lot has been written about silence and and, and its role in this novel, and uh, and and that's a one of the the places that it, it, it plays out. One of the examples of it playing out in this novel is that he doesn't ever talk to Danny <laughs> in the novel unless it's for this very strict religious purpose. Um, and so, uh, so he's speaking to Reuven here. Um, uh, you heard my little talk. Rev Saunders asked me quietly. I felt my head nod and you had nothing to, you have nothing to say. I felt his eyes on me and found myself staring down at the table the eyes were like flames on my face. Reuven, you like the gematria, Rev Saunders asked softly. I looked up and nodded. Danny hadn't moved at all. He just sat there grinning. His little brother was playing with the tomato again, and the men at the tables were silent, staring at me now. I am very happy, Reb Saunders said gently. You like the gematria? Which gematria did you like? I heard myself say lamely and hoarsely, they were all very good. Reb Saunders' eyebrows went up. All, he said, a very nice thing. They were all very good. Reuven, were they all very good? I felt Danny stir and saw him turn his head, the grin uh, gone now from his lips. He glanced at me quickly, then looked down again at his paper plate. I looked at Reb Saunders. No, I heard myself say hoarsely. They were not all good. There was a stir from the men at the tables. Reb Saunders sat back in his leather chair. Nuruvan, he said quietly, tell me which one was not good. One of the gematriot was wrong, I said. I thought the world would fall in on me after I said that. I was a 15-year-old boy, and there I was telling Reb Saunders he had been wrong, but nothing happened. There was another stir from the crowd, but nothing happened. And instead, Reb Saunders broke into a warm, broad smile. And which one was it, he asked me quietly. The gematria for Prosdor is 503, not 513, I answered. 
good, very good, Reb Saunders said, smiling and nodding his head. Um, very good. The Gematria for Prozdor comes out 503. Very good. Um, and so uh, Reuven is this sort of mathematical wizard, right? He, he wants to become a math professor. Uh, and so he has this way of, um, oh, I guess, applying the secular knowledge as a way to enhance this religious reading, right? And at this absolutely, yeah, yeah. And at he, age fifteen, at age fifteen, <laughs> exactly, jerk. Um, and then, uh, but this is a very impressive to this sort of, you know, I mean, genius of of the Talmud, right? And so he has uh, a way in which he impresses um, this man for finding a flaw in what he, uh, in his mathematics. Now. Um, what do you make of that scene and why is it important to understand? Yeah, to give a little bit of a uh, context and commentary. I mean, you know, before the scene that Danny just read, the uh, rabbi, uh, you know, Isaac Saunders had just given this long talk about how different words in the Perkei Avot, the sayings of the fathers and the Sanhedrin, these various Talmudic documents uh, have certain numbers of letters in them, certain combinations of letters. Those letters when multiplied together, get these certain results and because of these certain results, we can see that the Talmud is our source of life and the Torah is our, you know, connection to God and all of these things. So, I mean, um, to my ear, you know, just because I was educated in a very historicist way in biblical theory, or not biblical theory, that sounds so pretentious, <laughs> in biblical studies, okay. right, <laughs> uh, you know. This is, you know, completely divorced from, you know, what is the text saying to its historical moment? What is the text doing in the, you know, fourth century AD or the second century BC or so on and so forth? So it's very alien to me, but it's also something that I have to respect because there is a seriousness to these combinations. And then, you know, what gets revealed in that little moment that Danny just read uh, is that the rabbi had intentionally planted a miscalculation to see if anyone at the table would be sharp enough to catch it mm. and only Reuven catches it. Yeah. So, I mean, it's this amazing moment where, you know, they are surrounded by all of his rabbinic students, all of these aspiring teachers of the faithful and this 15 year old kid shows them all up. So, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's a, it's a glorious little scene. I mean, I really do love it. It's also just extraordinarily tense because like Danny said, you know, this rabbi doesn't talk to his own son. So he is, in a way, you know, playing this, you know, genius that is, you know, his son's only friend, as far as I can tell, against him. Uh, he is, you know, basically setting him up as a rival uh, when he just discovered him as an ally. So, I mean, you know, there is the, just some very, very weird uh, family dynamics going on here, to be sure. Uh, but there's also, you know, a sense that this is urgent in a way that, I'll, I'll just speak for myself here. I often don't treat my own faith as urgent, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, my, my own son is 13 right now. I would never dream of doing something like this at the dinner table, much less when we have company over. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what do you think? I, you know, that the, the family dynamics and then the seriousness of the faith are what I drew from that, that scene. I mean, what jumps out at you? Well, I mean, a couple things um, stand out to me. One is the, um, uh, I think what's important, this is another moment in which um, Rabbi Saunders's worldview has to accommodate things out from outside of it, like a, a, a complication to it, because um, Reuven is not from his 
elite sect of, of Hasidim, right? Reuven is an Orthodox Jew, um, um, but he, they're, so they're, pretty conservative um they're not like ultra conservative right and, and so he, right. conservative in the protestant sense not in the sense of the jewish group the conservative jews yes yes exactly um they're pretty orthodox right uh pretty uh observant right you'd say there you uh, go there yeah, you go in, in the, in, I, I just wanted to make sure we didn't get that angry email <laughs> that's a good thank you well i don't get enough angry emails actually I, I i want more pushback than i get usually um and so yeah uh, maybe i should plant a mistake for people to catch on purpose uh just or, or you know <laughs> just call yourself the christian feminist podcast apparently they get plenty of hate mail i read that uh or i heard that in uh oh i just caught up on one episode that you guys did and you were talking about that and that's that's not nice um um, that's a good podcast. I, I'm sad to hear that they get uh, they get hate mail. Um, that's, that's yeah. I, I, apparently, being a woman on the internet is a very different experience. Yes, that's true. I, I try to diversify my podcast enough. I mean, it's easy to just fall into this a bunch of white guys in a room talking uh, form of podcast. So I try to go out of my way to bring in you know people of color and and and, and other genders. But uh, yeah, and because it is. This is something to consider, listener out there. How how are you? How generous are you to to the Christian feminist podcast? Um, which I was listening. I can't remember which episode I just caught up on with you guys. Um, oh, I think it was the kind of blue episode you were talking about that when um, I was just listening to that this weekend. So, um, but anyway, a diversion. Uh, hate mail. Oh, and so um, this is a moment for me that's also interesting. In uh, in that, um, so. So I'm so I forgot where I was. Reuven is fr- not from this elite set of uh, of scholarship, basically uh, this uh, religious scholar scholarly group. He's from a different yeshiva, and they go to a different synagogue, right? And so there's a real. Um, uh, it's very impressive to Rev Saunders that someone outside of that is the only one who who can call him on his on his trick, right? Yeah, that's uh, that's good to note. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, and that actually plays back all the way into the baseball game that begins. Like, there's this like death rivalry between um, baseball teams representing various yeshivas, right? And that's why it's so serious that Danny almost literally blinds uh, Reuven uh, by hitting with a baseball. This this baseball game even is ultimately serious to Rev Saunders and his crew, kind of. You almost have gang dynamics here. Um, and um, and so you've got this, uh, that, that complication. But also what's interesting to me is that, I think I hinted at just a few minutes ago, um, this is a moment where Danny's secular knowledge doesn't conf- doesn't like inhibit uh, a, a religious study, right? Uh, it doesn't inhibit uh, learning the Talmud. It actually enhances his understanding of the Talmud. And I think that that's something that is a powerful theme in this book is finding a way to reconcile modernity, right? Um, this religious orthodoxy now exists in an environment that is secular, right? Uh, and so what can the secular actually provide to the religious person to actually enhance their faith rather than just become a stumbling block, right? And, and I think this is one of those moments in this book where you sort of see that, um, that tension um, coming in, into play here. Um, and Danny, my... Uh, my- Rusty, first of all, and also limited uh, notion of Jewish history is going to be on display here. But I mean, are not the Hasidim themselves a sect that came into being uh, as a sort of counter movement against modernity's 
increasing influence in Judaism? Yeah, I mean, this or, is, or are they older than that? I, I for some reason I've got in my head that they're an 18th century uh, uh, development. That's about right. Yeah, it's um, uh, if my memory serves me right, I, I, I'm not exactly sure um, about the dates here, but it is um, it is sort of a, a reaction. Is a kind of a loose corollary. You can think of the Amish, <laughs> you know, um, sort of just picking a moment in time to withdraw back to and letting modernity pass past that moment, um, except for them. Um, I think in, in a lot of ways, the Hasidic Jews function in the same way. There is a deliberate effort around the time that you say um, to withdraw from the corrupting forces of modernity, right? And then you end up... Right, so so about the time that Baruch Spinoza is doing his thing, yeah. that's when the Hasidim decide that, you know, okay, these new changes, we can't run along with them. We have to take a stand here and, you know, maintain a very concrete tradition in the face of, you know, this fluidity that we see around us. Yes. Yeah, I think that that's probably right. Um, and uh, at the end of the show, I want to point out a couple of other writers. Uh, there's three that come to mind um, as we're talking that kind of elaborate on these, on some of the dynamics of this book in more detail. And Cynthia Ozick is one. I, I think that I, I'm going to point some people to some resources to kind of, if you're interested in um, the Hasidim and, and their uh, kind of, uh, Countercultural um, positions in, in history. I have a couple stories for you to check out uh, that I think you'll enjoy. So, um, but yeah, uh, so that's actually what stands out to me about that. Um, all because of this gematria scene, right? <laughs> so yeah, I know that. Uh, oh, uh, the listener. I'm sorry, the name is uh, Escape Edwin. Edwin's uh, Edwin question uh, actually led to a pretty good discussion here. So, mm-hmm. um, well, well, it's in that context, Danny. I mean, that we get. Uh, you know, the revelation, and I can't remember what happens before chapter seven or after, uh, that, you know, David Malter is actually passing Danny Saunders, you know, the heir apparent of this rabbinic responsibility. He's passing him, you know, secular books, including, and I can't remember, does he pass him Freud or does uh, Danny discover Freud on his own? Uh, you, that's a detail that escapes me, but it is Freud because uh, Danny who's supposed to take over his father's position. I mean, that's the way this, this is like a, uh, an aristocratic sort of um, structure. Like the, the leader of these, um, these sects, it's by heredity. Right. And so Danny is born as a genius too. Right. It, and, it's revealed in the chapter just after I just now looked at my notes. Sorry okay. about that. Yeah. And, but he has like made it, he makes a decision. He's, he wants to become a Freudian psychologist. Right. <laughs> and so, um, and so, yeah, somebody gives him the book and is it, is it Reuben? Um, I think it's actually David Malters that gives him Freud. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, so that is the, uh, and so, that's the challenge then that, that um, Isaac Saunders, Rabbi Saunders, is faced with. Here it is with Reuven, the secular knowledge, because Reuven's sort of a math whiz, um, uh, actually contributes to a deeper understanding, um, a more accurate, if you will, understanding of the faith. Um, what about uh, his own son now? Like his son wants to um, divert from the faith and focus on secular things. How is he going to react to that, right? That is the the dilemma that he's placed in, um, in the sequence of events then. Yeah, that's about right. And I mean, what's fascinating is that, you know, David is broadening, um, basically the, the questions that are even occurring to, you know, young 
Danny, you know, uh, Saunders, right? Gosh, yeah. I don't know why that I just <laughs> blanked on that. Uh, but you know, at the same time, uh, both of the young men, you know, are displaying this aptitude. And, you know, one of the dynamics that, again, I find so fascinating is that, you know, as you said, Danny is definitely looking away from the rabbinate, right? Uh, he does not want to become the next Rev Saunders. He wants to become a psychologist. Uh, but as the events of the book unfold, uh, Reuven goes the other direction, right? Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, you know, and I don't think we can at this point spoil a 50 year old book, but you know, uh, you know, that's what ends up happening is that, you know, uh, Reuven eventually, you know, joins the rabbinate, uh, Danny renounces it. Uh, and it's only, you know, in that state, in that state of things that, uh, the father and son in the Saunders family can actually talk to each other because that mantle is not going to pass to Danny anymore. Yeah. So he becomes, you know, just another human being in his life rather than, again, this superhuman figure. I mean, I, I keep using that word, Danny. And again, you know, is that how you read it? I mean, I, I read it as, I mean, this is a responsibility that goes beyond what anyone else in the book, much less the reader, thinks of as human relationships. I mean, it, it transcends it. Is that? Do you think that's fair enough? Absolutely. There's this um, utter devotion to God, right, in which everything is in service of him. And so um, you've got even his own son, right? His own son is this almost robot, right? That he's programming to be super Talmud reader, right? And, and so, and he won't even establish a relationship with him outside of that relationship. That, that's important to consider this idea of silence that runs through the novel, right? Um, and there's periods of silence between the Saunders and, and the Malters as well um, because of I mean, we don't have to go into every detail of this book, but um, but that fact that um, Isaac Saunders, the Rabbi Saunders, won't even address his son as a son, right? He addresses him as only this like pure intellect of Talmudic uh, inquiry, right? Um, that I mean, that is absolutely, I mean, a pressure that I mean is incomprehensible for like a human being, and probably explains why he's interested in Freud. <laughs> when you think, when you think oh, about abso- oh, absolutely. Oh, dear heavens. Yes. When you think about it, right? I mean, when, yeah. When, when, when your father really is the king, <laughs> Freud makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah. And I guess we should say, I know that like psychologists, like practicing people in psychology don't really give Freud much credit today as a psychologist. Right. Um, but as a, I mean, you can't, you still can't escape his influence on the 20th century. So studying Freud for us today still has a lot of value, if only to understand a lot of literary works that were so enthralled with Freud for so long, right? I mean, uh, and so it's, it's almost like he's become a literary critic more than a psychoanalytic, uh, figure. Uh, oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the joke that always ran when I was in seminary was, you know, don't go to the philosophy department to read Hegel. Don't go to the economics department to read Marx. Yeah. Don't go to the psychology department to read Freud. Come to seminary. <laughs> exactly. Right. And, and Lionel Trilling makes a, I mean, Lionel Trilling was also enthralled with, uh, with Freud. And he makes a case that, I mean, the way Freud read dreams, interpreted dreams is very, um, oh, I guess 
similar to the way literary critics interpret works of art, right? And so Freud has his methodology for psychology is actually much better suited to literary criticism, right? And, and so, right, um, and for that matter, the way that rabbis and priests read the Bible, absolutely, right? Uh, and so, yeah, in some ways, um, Danny's uh, draw towards Freud isn't as Oh, I guess offensive as it might seem on the per, on the on the surface, right? All right, um, I'd, I'd say it's offensive, but it's understandable. Yes, yeah, yeah, and, and but it also kind of works too, right? And and oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. And, and and just to say, just to be clear, Danny doesn't renounce religion or God, right? He's he's going. No, to, he's still a Jew at the end. Yes, he's going to cut and his, a practicing Jew. <laughs> he's going to cut his curls and, and he's going to. Um, sort of leave Hasidim, uh, leave the Hasidim, but he still hasn't lost his faith in God by adapting, I guess, to assimilating, if you will, um, to a degree to uh, the modern world, the modern intellect, life of the mind. Uh, And and it is interesting, as you mentioned, David, who was supposed to be a professor, um, according to his father, also had sort of pressure on him. He wants him to be a, a professor, right? He ends up becoming a rabbi. So they both kind of go the opposite directions, um, not only from each other, but from what their fathers had asked them or had wished for them. Um, right, right. And and it's interesting because, I mean, the question that, you know, I, I recited from the beginning of the episode, you know, will you make a goy out of my son? Yes. <laughs> I mean, you know, that is, you know, the great terror of you know isaac saunders right you know that his son who is supposed to be the keeper of this you know superhuman tradition is not only going to leave that tradition but also is going to leave judaism altogether which he doesn't and you know that's important i mean you know it is he does not become a goy but he does become orthodox rather than hasidic Mm -hmm. and you know that that middle place allows them to maintain that or really to establish a real father son relationship. Yeah. Whereas for Reuven, I mean, it's interesting. The, the real turn is when they discover the Holocaust, right? Yeah. Uh, and we mentioned this at the beginning, but I mean, you know, in chapter 11 of the novel, you know, I mean, when David Malters, you know, comes home from, you know, work and he's heard about the Holocaust and the reports of the camp are starting to come in, you know, his outburst is only American Jewry is left so, I mean, there's a sense of urgency there that, you know, all of a sudden his son's, you know, desire to enter the rabbinate, not only does he accept it at that point, but he becomes one of its most urgent backers, right? I mean, yeah. you have to become a rabbi now because if we do not educate the next generation of Jews, we are going to be exterminated. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, sort of, so the faith and knowledge are sort of un you can't disentangle them. Right. Um, Right. Right. And, you know, because of, you know, the just utter obliteration of Jewry in Poland and Eastern Europe and Central Europe, you know, there's an urgency to what are American Jews going to do that wasn't there in the first half of the novel. Yeah. And, you know, as as it should be, by the way, I'm not saying that that's, you know, not anything but an understandable and, and right reading of the situation on the part of David Malter. Right. Yeah. Uh, but you know, it's fascinating that that is ultimately what, you know, gets the Malter family completely behind the, the trip to rabbinic school. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's a good point. I want to, we're sort of approaching an hour here. I want to, um, talk about 
sort of application, <laughs> if you will. Um, yeah. How like Christians might um, approach this text and, and kind of use it to uh, inflame their own imaginations about we, what we might become. But before we do that, there is one other uh, moment in the text that's kind of related to, to what we've been talking about. It's towards the end of the book and Reuven um, displays a kind of, um, oh, I guess, uh, acumen uh, for a, another rabbi, a rabbi Gershenson um, in, in, a, in, a, in a yeshiva and is sort of quizzed about it. And I want to sort of talk about that scene, if that's OK, and, and see what you'd make of it. Yeah, by all means. Um, and so, yeah, he's uh, being quizzed, basically. Um, and he, like, comes up with this basically amazing interpretation uh, of the Talmud, right? And then uh, Rabbi Gersh- Gershenson, excuse me, um, uh, asks him to explain what he means. And says, I explained how I had reconstructed the text, then quoted the reconstructed text from memory, showing him how it fitted perfectly to the explanation offered by the simplest of all the commentaries. I ended by saying, I felt certain that was the text of the, excuse me. I ended by saying, I felt certain that was the text of the Talmud manuscript. The commentator had before him when he had written his commentary. So he does some sort of like, um, I guess historical reconstruction of original source texts, That's right? That's exactly what he does in that scene. And yes. he stepped into my world of biblical studies. Yes. Like when, when, when I read this scene, I said, ah, this is how I studied. Yes. Yes. And then, um, and then Rev Gershon, Gershenson was silent for a long moment, his face impassive. Then he said slowly, you did this by yourself, Reuven? Yes. Your father is a good teacher, he told me quietly. You are blessed to have such a father. His voice was soft, reverent. Reuven? Yes. I must ask you never to use such a method of explanation in my class. <laughs> Basically. That's, a, that's such a great scene. It is. And so why don't you uh, riff on that a little bit since it is your area? Well, sure. I mean, you know, this is... Uh, you know, one of those great moments uh, in which the student, you know, has been in the library and encountered new theories and so on and so forth and uh, basically comes to the instructor with methods that the instructor is aware of but doesn't work into the curriculum because the students really aren't ready for it. Yeah. And my hunch is that nobody in that room except for Reuven Malter is ready for that, right? right? (laughs) And moreover, I get the sense from the scene, and Danny, you can tell me if you read it this way or not, uh, that, you know, if word gets back to the authorities in the school, the administration or whatever they would call it, uh, that there would be some trouble for Rev Gershenson. Yeah. Uh, that, you know, we don't do that at this school. Yes. Uh, so again, you know, uh, as a professor who, you know, teaches Friedrich Nietzsche and other such things at an evangelical college, this scene resonated with me greatly. I, um, and in fact, I, I I'm going to tell a story on him. And uh, I don't even know if he listens to this show. If so, then, uh, David, I'm about to tell your story. But uh, our student, Danny, David Pagan, yeah. uh, he's in seminary now at a you know liberal mainline seminary where they kind of pride themselves on being able to assimilate and incorporate every kind of reading that's possible. Yeah. Uh, but apparently after one class this semester, uh, the professor pulled David aside and said, David, could you leave Nietzsche at home for the next couple classes, please? <laughs> so uh, he, he was very pleased that, you know, his uh, Nietzsche reading at this little 
Pentecostal college in North Georgia is, uh, you know, so, so much of a presence that the uh, professor has to back him down. That is awesome to hear actually. Yeah. Yeah. I, the, the kind of, I just, it's almost like, I mean, the picture I had in mind is, is someone brought in like evolution into like a evangelical biology class or something. Right. And, and, and it's, it's potentially explosive uh, to certain stakeholders in the institution. Right. And, and so, oh, absolutely. absolutely. Um, because it, it like, um, I mean, in the way that uh, Danny Saunders himself challenges the what authority, I guess, of these strict readings of things, what Reuven has just done is something that could be quote unquote dangerous to the stability to the uh, to the accepted traditions uh, that um, this community has sort of rallied around, I guess. Right. Um, and it's interesting that during the same span in the novel, uh, Danny's great frustration is that, you know, when he brings up Freud in his psychology classes, his psychology professors basically dismiss him the way that you talked about just a bit ago, Danny. Yeah. They said, no serious psychologist does anything with Freud these days. Yeah. And Danny says, but... I came here to study psychology. Freud is a psychologist. Why are we not doing Freud? Yeah. Yeah. And cause he's going to a particular, I mean like basically like an analytical kind of school, right? Like the, uh, I'm yeah. guessing sort of like a, Oh, I guess a, what do they call that? A, uh, a, new you know numerical studies what do they call those things right uh, research psychology yeah research psychology yeah and so yeah and so freud isn't taken seriously in those circles right so right because what because his theses are not by definition measurable that's exactly right right um and therefore they're more religious in some ways right <laughs> they absolutely have, and so and so i guess what's interesting about that parallel now that you bring it up is that this oh i guess fundamentalism isn't just a feature of a religious tradition, but also these secular traditions have their own kind of fundamentalisms that can be upset uh, by outside influences, right? And therefore, they're kind of just as vociferously, vociferously rejected. And what's also interesting, and one of the genuine surprises in this novel, uh, is that when Danny finally sits down with his professor and talks about his, you know, distaste for experimental th psychology, uh, in the course of that conversation, Danny changes his mind and he says, what I wanted to do with Freud can actually harmonize with what an experimental psychologist does. And, you know, his view broadens, which, yeah. you know, is what we as professors hope our students do when they encounter new ideas anyway. Yeah. I didn't anticipate that Danny would do that. Yeah. I, yeah. That's a good point, actually. Right. Um, uh, yeah, that's a good, that's a. Uh I hadn't thought of that either, actually, not until you mentioned it. Um, so let's uh, kind of zoom out from this uh, specific text. Um, and if li listeners, if you have any further thoughts or readings about the text, by all means, you know, find us on Twitter, send me an email. Uh, if you go to sectarianreviewpodcast.com, you can find all the links to contact us. Um, uh, the Facebook page is probably the best place to uh, to leave long notes, though, because other people can see them then. It's not just for my eyes. So um, the uh, uh, the, I guess, ramifications uh, for a Christian reader of this book, like what, are, what, what can we take from this? Yeah, I mean, the fact that, you know, Kristen recommended this book is why we read it. So yeah. we ought to lay that on the table, first of all. Yes. But it happened that, you know, I was reading it for the first time and you were reading it perhaps for the sixth or seventh time. Uh, in this moment when, you know, people are talking again, I'll say, because, you know, 30 years ago they were talking about resident aliens. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but with Rod Dreher's book, The Benedict Option, about you, about which you and I have very 
different opinions and that's okay. okay. Um, you know, this question is arising once more, you know, is Christianity, you know, in its traditional mode, right? Uh, and again, I'm trying to stay away from that word conservative because it means six different things. Yeah. But, you know, in its, you know, traditional cast, uh, is there an urgency to educating the next generation of Christians that is in any way analogous to what, Mal- you know, what David Malters is talking about here? Now, I say analogous because I want to go ahead and get on the table right out of the gate that I don't think that, you know, the history of, you know, Protestant Christianity over the last 50 years is anything like the history of Judaism sure. over the last, you know, ever 2,200 years. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I was just going back to like when people started calling them Jews, basically. Yeah. Uh, but I think that, you know, we either should or should not. And that's kind of what, you know, made me curious as Danny and I were planning out this episode, uh, Danny Anderson, not Danny Saunders. Um, <laughs> You know, my sense is that, you know, at the very least, we can say historically that Stanley Hauerwas in the mid 80s, Rod Dreher in the mid teens have this sense that, you know, the education of a new generation of Christians has an urgency to it that maybe it didn't have 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. And there are days, I have to confess, when I think that they are probably right. You know, I mean, when I go to my tiny church in North Georgia, and I realized that, you know, not only are my kids some of the only people under 20, but that my wife and I are some of the only people under 50. Mm. You know, I mean, uh, there is a sense, you know, not that there's been a violent oppression, uh, but that there has been a cultural assimilation that might draw some righteous sense of urgency. So, you know, that, that that's the question that I kind of want to start out with, you know, uh, where you are, Danny, I mean, do you sense that urgency or, you know, do you say, do you see that as sort of a, uh, a false anxiety? No, I do. And honestly, I feel like the real, and first of all, I'm not, I would like to, I don't know exactly what our difference is about the Benedict option. Like I, I agree largely with his book i think he is so obsessed with sex like that is that's the only thing wrong with i mean i feel like he puts an an overt emphasis on sexual mores and values as the reason that christians need to withdraw And, and i think he ignores other things that are probably more i think i feel like the sexual issues are a subset of a larger problem that he wants to ignore. Um, and so um, about individualism in general that I think you can blame conservatism for as much as liberalism. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I can basically agree with that. I mean, you know, I, I, like I said, I mean, when I read the book, I see it as probably 80% about education and discipleship and about 20% about sex politics. Yeah. And some people read it and they see it as 80% about sex politics and 20%. So, yeah. you know, I, I think that's mainly where our disagreement about the book lies. Yeah, yeah. And I guess I, I don't disagree with a lot of his points in that book. I, I just think he's sort of too narrowly defining the problem, I suppose. But um, back to the, the topic at hand here. Um, I feel like in this kind of... The, the problem with the Benedict option, I guess, for Christians, and if we want to see what um, the Malters are doing uh, as a... Jewish form of that um, uh, as the Malter option. Yeah. The Malter option. That's what we should have is the Malter option. The problem with that is um, in Christendom today in America, 
there are there is a marketplace of ideas. Uh, there, I mean, there's a market driven version of Christian discipleship and Christian intellectualism. Okay, and so it takes the form of kind of horsey ducky Bible study curriculum, fill in the blank Bible studies. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Um, these video series that are about this, they're about an inch deep in their, their theological reckoning. And I think that when Christians today are looking to sort of double down on their Christianity, overwhelmingly what they're going to double down on is the God's not dead version of, of Christianity. Okay. And, oh yeah. Yeah. And, and so I feel like to, to huddle into that is a total disaster, right? Uh, I think that's a total, uh, not only an intellectual disaster, but there's an ethical and a moral disaster that comes along with huddling into a shallow pond of theology, theology like that. Um, and so what I love about the traditions that were given a vision of in this book is that they are like they're a they're atemporal, right? I mean, they're they're out of our specific time and marketplace, and they're historic, right? And and they're deep and they're dense, and there's an expectation that you need to suck it up and learn stuff that's hard, right? <laughs> and, and not not necessarily rely on aphorisms and, and tweetable uh, theology, right? And so um, I feel like that's the danger for Christians today is that the ma- vast majority of the Benedict optionites, when they, when they Benedict, um, what they're going to Benedict into is uh, basically a, a kiddie pool. And, and I don't think that anybody's going to be better off for that. Right, right, right. And I, and I agree that people shouldn't just be Benedictin around, but I would say that, you know, the actual book Benedict option, that this is what I live for, Danny, these moments, but I think that the actual book again, I mean, and I think it's in that tradition of, you know, Stan Hauerwas's resident aliens. Yeah. Uh, I think it's in that tradition of, you know, honestly, you know, the, the movement that, you know, gave rise to, Christian colleges in the wake of the scopes trial, right? Yeah. Is an idea that, and again, this is not all Christian colleges. This is not all books, you know, addressing this phenomenon, but these two books in particular seem to have a notion that it's precisely the abandonment of depth that makes us susceptible to the assimilation. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, Rod Dreher says, I mean, we should have our teenagers reading origin of Alexandria and, you know, um, I can't remember what other figures he puts out there, but, but, you know, uh, basically, you know, very early, uh, church figures. I think he points to the Cappadocians, right. Uh, so that, you know, we actually know the range of questions that are available to us so that we're not limited to what we can pick up at our local Lifeway Christian store. Yes. Right. Um, and if everybody, honestly, if everybody, when at that direction, I would have way less problem with the Benedict option. I, I just don't feel like that's, I, I feel like the danger of the post-Christian moment, I think that's what you put in the notes. Um, how did we, uh, post-Christendom secularism, right? Um, uh, I feel like the danger is, is that it's not, Christen, Christendom hasn't just vanished. It's, it's, its remnant is this really kind of like shallow marketplace. Right. Uh, and so I feel like abandoning into things that are marketed as Christian is where it's going to go. Right. And, and, and honestly, Christian colleges are complicit in this. How many Christian colleges are basically secular colleges with chapel, 
right? Uh, that, right. That you right. have to go to. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not a solution to this, right? Uh, that's not a solution to the problem. Uh, there's some way, there's got to be a move to create para institutions like yeshivas, I suppose, right? But you got to send your kids to these things with more than an expectation that they get a good job, right? Because what you're doing then is buying the the idea that a human being is only the job they do, right? And, and so um, and, until Christians are willing to um, invest in truly kind of alternative forms of education um, that are more classical, I think, in appearance, um, then I, I just don't see it as being beneficial, frankly. Um, right. And just to say it one more time so that when Danny's responding to the angry emails, he can <laughs> say, well, as we said later in the show, we are not claiming here neither Danny nor I, that anything like a violent oppression is associated with, you know, the decline of Christendom in the way that it was with Judaism in the mid 20th century. Yeah. That, that would be an utterly stupid historical claim and neither of us is going to make that. Yeah. But the effects of it, like I said, you know, bear an analogous relationship that I think stands interesting. And Danny, I mean, to your point, uh, I agree that, you know, as we imagine what Christian education is, uh, you know, this is something that, you know, Arthur Holmes kind of had his finger on back in the sixties or seventies when he was writing his little purple book. Mm. Um, (laughs) you know, that we can't think of the Christian college as merely a force field within which, you know, students won't be touched by the world, but it's gotta be something like what we saw in that scene, you know, where, uh, Reuven Malter is taking, you know, the methods of, historical criticism, textual criticism, you know, these things that are, you know, historicist and partaking in scholarship at its best in order to do the work of maintaining the faith. There's got to be an act of learning to speak the faith uh, in this new context. So in some ways, you know, I mean, you know, when you write your book, The Malter Option, you know, uh, (laughs) make me a footnote in it. Uh, But, you know, I I think this is definitely an emphasis that is worth noting no, I, I'm probably much more likely to write a book called Benedicting Around. Um, <laughs> that's, if we're honest with ourselves here, that's much more of my style, <laughs> actually. And uh, I can't believe no one's already ca- claimed that name. Uh, that's that's brilliant. Um, I was going to say, watch Twitter today. Let's see if it. <laughs> um, and so uh, the uh, and I will say, honestly, to your point about making too close a parallel to the quote unquote oppression of evangelical. I like, I don't buy it. And I think another critique of, of mine of Dreyer's book is that he buys it too much. I think he makes too much of our marginalization. I think the biggest problem with, with Christianity, and I'm not going to specify evangelicals because I think it's broader than that. The biggest problem with Christianity isn't that the culture has marginalized us is that we've uh, assimilated too much into the culture, right? I, and, and I think that um, there's a, uh, a, I think that's a much bigger problem than any kind of external impression. I think it's a an internal lack of seriousness that is a much bigger problem. Um, and I think that that's another critique of mine, of his book, which again, just to be safe or to be clear, 75% with, I, I agree with his book, right? Uh, it's sort of the way he sets it up. And some of his conclusions I think are, are hokey, but, um, but, and, and, also, I mean, I mean, his Twitter presence is just so adversarial. <laughs> just like, oh, I'm not going to disagree with you on that point. Yeah, he, I mean, I when you interviewed that, him, that there are certain Christian writers who should have their Twitter feeds taken away. 
And unfortunately, I like Rod, but I mean, Rod cannot behave himself on Twitter. When you interviewed him on Christian Humanist Profiles, and go back and listen to that episode, uh, if you go to ChristianHumanist.org, you'll find links to uh, all the other shows on our network. Christian Humanist Profiles is one in which we try to, I think, give listeners a taste of this bigger life of the mind, right? Uh, and finding important ideas to wrestle with and, and talking with the authors of those ideas. You did a great interview with Rod Dreher and he was the most lovely man that you've ever could encounter on that interview. He was very polite and kind and, um, and, and when he's on Twitter. It's just like anybody that disagrees with him gets 10,000 words in the face. Right. And, and so it's true. It's true. I'm not going <laughs> to deny that. I... So um, let me, uh, before we, I let you go, I'm going to, make a couple of recommendations of other writers, a couple of which I've already spoken about. Um, Absolutely. That deal, I think, with similar ideas. And and frankly, these are writers that academics do take, quote unquote, more seriously for whatever it's worth. I, I often, I mean, I, ha- I kind of am headed up to here with academia in a lot of ways. And so I don't really take... I don't put too much stock in academic opinions of things. Okay. But, um, Philip Roth, uh, of course is someone that you should probably read anyway, but in, with regards to these issues, if you just go pick up his first book, which is a, a, a collection of short stories, it's called goodbye Columbus and other stories. There's a story in there called conversion of the Jews that, um, very much speaks along the lines of these, uh, speaks along these lines, uh, of wrestling with, this old ancient religion existing in a modern context, right? And in that case, you have a young man, a, a kid who's going to a Jewish school. This they're prepping for their um, bar mitzvahs, um, and um, and uh, uh, I forget the kid's name now. But he uh, uh, is basically runs into conflict with his teacher because he is taking the faith so seriously, he's jumping to conclusions that the faith won't assert to, right? And so God is all powerful. Well, if God's all powerful, why couldn't Mary have a baby without having sex, right? Uh, and then he's, he's, uh, obviously finds himself in, um, uh, lots of trouble because he's like so serious about his faith. He takes it to intellectual places that is uncomfortable for the institutions that are educating him. Right. It's a great little short story. It's funny too. And, uh, and, uh, and it also, I think elaborates on some of the tensions here. So conversion. Right. Con- I, I actually read that a couple of years ago on your recommendation, Danny. It is a good story. Yeah. Thank you. Good. Um, I wrote it myself. No, I'm <laughs> By Philip Roth, Conversion of the Jews. Um, and uh, Cynthia Ozick, as I mentioned, uh, she is a ve- she's also an Orthodox writer, right? Um, and so she writes in very imaginative ways, and it's very a little bit of magical realism. Cynthia Ozick, I think, is one of America's most underestimated writers. Like she's probably the greatest writer that nobody's ever heard of that, that doesn't pay, that doesn't pay too close that popular readers don't pay attention to enough to um, like, she gets lots of critical attention, but I don't think enough people realize just how great she is as a writer. And, um, and so her, she has a story called bloodshed about um, a Jewish man whose cousin has married into this Hasidic community out in the woods somewhere in upstate New York. And he drives out to visit her and these kind of strange events happen. Uh, And I'm not going to spoil the story, but it has to do with the kind of 
oh, there's almost like a magical nature to the Hasidim, right? And and there's a uh, clearly Holocaust metaphors, uh, or not metaphors. Uh, the Holocaust is directly dealt with in this story. Ozik does not avoid that topic in the way that Roth and um, Bellow and all the other sort of Jewish American writers sort of wrote around the topic, Ozick dives right in. Um, and so Cynthia Ozick's Bloodshed is another story that you should see, and it's in a collection of stories as well. Um, and then finally, Michael Shabon's great novel, The Yiddish Policeman's Union, is um, kind of a, an alternative history about Israel kind of failing in its first formation and all the Jews in the world are rounded up in this, in Sitka, Alaska. And, uh, and it becomes this sort of metaphor for Zionism. And, and you also get, um, Hasidim represented as gangsters in this move, in this, uh, in this, in this novel. And it's really, it's funny. It's a great detective story. I I'm teaching next semester, um, the literature of crime and detection, which is, you know, crime, you know, detective stories. And I'm actually going to teach this for that class. Uh, it's a, it's a great detective story. It's got this kind of film noir aesthetic. Um, it feels like a movie the Coen brothers should make um, is, is what I, is the nice. best way I could describe it. But it also deals with a lot of the subtextual stuff um, and in the historical context that Potok is dealing with. So if you're interested in some of these topics, there's a lot of other places to go. And, and I just wanted to give you some resources for there. Nathan, anything come to mind for you or uh, any recommendations? I'm not really, like I said, I mean, this is not remotely my field. I uh, read this book, you know, on... Uh, Kristen's recommendation. I'm glad I did. Yeah. Uh, because like I said, you know, uh, you are David Malter. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, <laughs> nice. Uh, you know, a lot of questions that this novel raises are, are questions that in an analogous sense, you know, are, are occupying my attention and my concern. So, I was glad to uh, take this on. I was too. And I, I was glad. It's like it's been 10 years since I've read this book. And um, and I kind of revisiting it here the last couple of weeks has been really great. And this conversation was awesome, as always, as it always is with the great Nathan Gilmore. If you're not caught up, uh, I, nobody listens to this show probably that doesn't already listen to the Christian Humanist podcast. So, uh, uh, but those of you who, who might not, uh, go to christianhumanist.org and, and there's a great blog there as well. You guys do a lot of great stuff there. Um, you'll find access to the whole array of what the network is doing and um and i think we're doing some exciting stuff i honestly feel like if i were to invent an ideal like educational system for christians i would make the christian humanist podcast the faculty i i i, I think <laughs> i think that our network is is exactly what um christians should be sort of uh immersing themselves in are you majoring in biology? No, 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 no. Book of Nature Studies. <laughs> exactly. Who, who needs majors, right? This is the problem. No accreditation. That's right. That's right. No, we don't need what, bean we, counters. We don't have majors. We have feeds. <laughs> yes, exactly. We don't want the bean counters to be involved in this at all. This is just, uh, you know, uh, pure knowledge for its own sake. Um, so, um, Nathan, thank you again for doing this. Thanks for your patience with me putting this off for another six months or whatever it's been since we were supposed to do this originally. Yeah. I'm just thinking to see when it actually goes on the internet. No, it'll, it'll be next Thursday. It'll be, <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, right. yeah. You're, 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 you're not, not going to pull a Spider-Man on me. You're next in queue. Nope. Uh, so yeah, you, this is coming out immediately. So, um, it should be almost Easter when this drops. <laughs> so. So, um, Nathan, thank you again. Um, listeners, you know where to find us, sectarianreviewpodcast.com. And uh, if you have any questions for us, you can go to the Facebook page and uh, contact me there. Um, I have an email, sectarianreview at gmail.com, Twitter, all the places. 
go to iTunes and leave a review. Nathan, you're the best one at, uh, at making the pitch for iTunes reviews. Do <laughs> you want to do it for me? Listeners, be sure to go to iTunes. This is where most people get their podcasts. And the more people recommend us there, the more friends we have to have this conversation with. And that's what we're all about, isn't it? So go to iTunes, leave us a review. He's so much better at that than I am. Uh, Nathan Gilmore, thank you again. Uh, this is Danny Anderson thanking you listeners for uh, for putting up with us here for another hour and 20 minutes. <laughs>